Let's start with prayer this morning. Lord, first of all, before we engage you in the Word this morning, having already engaged you in song, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ that we'll spend eternity with that are right now pilgrims, uh, aliens living in Norway, just grieving for brothers and sisters in Christ. They're realizing that in many ways that they have to press on in a context that just got a lot more difficult given that this man was uh, somehow associated with Christianity. Lord, we grieve for them and we ache for them and we ache for the gospel through them. Um, I guess not in spite of this, but because of this, in some weird way, knowing that you are sovereign and good and that nothing happens except by your ordained will or your allowed permissive will, that you've permitted this for some reason that you can be glorified through it. We pray for your glory through it. Pray for believers there to point toward the absolute hope, the absolute righteousness that we have in the finished work and the person of Jesus Christ. Pray for clarity and boldness for the people of God in Norway. Pray for those sheep as yet undiscovered, those who have not heard the gospel yet, who may hate Christians at this very moment more so than ever, but have not heard the good news yet that they will hear the shepherd's voice and respond in repentance and faith. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for a member of our body who is on the field in Ghana right now on a medical mission trip. We pray for Sherry Warren. Pray that she is being used for your glory. Pray that she is uh, attentive to what you'd have her say and do, that she is walking as she's serving on this mission trip, that she is walking in faith and enjoying the finished work of Christ. Thankful for this opportunity that she has to serve in Ghana. Pray that the hands and feet and mouth and message of Christ will be administered through her. Lord, in these next few minutes for this people... Thinking about how awesome eight years have been together enjoying just a simple book. Thankful for not only what you've shown us, the Christ that you've explained to us, the God that you've portrayed in this story, Thankful, too, for the man that recorded the words, the man that, that loved Jesus, walked with Jesus, that left his personal fishing boat to follow Jesus. Thankful for a man that served the Ephesian church until he's exiled in Patmos and died of old age and is now enjoying you, glory. It's been a sweet, sweet journey. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I like John. He's a good guy, a friend by this point. Mm. John chapter 21. It's our last Sunday in the book of John. 
I'm sure we'll come back at times. It'll be a satellite on one occasion or another. Um, but that's why the title of the message is A Smiley Face, and that's why you have a smiley face on the front of your bulletin. It really has nothing to do with the content at all. It's just because it's our last sermon in, in John, and we're kind of cleaning our plate in John and getting a smiley face this morning. I mentioned it to Luke this morning. Luke was laying on the couch after breakfast, and I mentioned to Luke, I said, Luke, it's our last Sunday in John. He said, oh, wow. I said, most of your life has been spent in John. He said, yeah. He said, all of, or no, I said, all of Daniel's life has been spent in John. He said, that's funny. You should have named him John. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty funny. We'll just start calling Daniel John. Or maybe we'll stick with Daniel. I'm going to read the entire chapter just for the sake of context. And then we're going to kind of close in on a couple of passages for this cleanup sermon. Let me just say, too, that God's book, this, this living word, is so awesome and so powerful that next Sunday we could start in John 1-1 and keep eating. It's not... Um, I'm thinking of some author. I don't read a lot of other books. It's not just a dead book that you read once and I got it. It keeps speaking. It's a living book. Man, what, how, how much... Have we been blessed by this? After this, after Christ was resurrected, Christ revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him. I can't imagine that they didn't answer it emphatically, no. He said to them, Well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. As they rolled their eyes, I expect, they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it all in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples, though, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, For they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled a net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. That was the imagery of crucifixion. After saying this, he said to him two words, commanding words. Follow me. Peter then turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? That one that did that on the night of his arrest? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him he wasn't to die, but... If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? There's two passages this morning that I want to focus in on as we sort of clean up the rest of John or clean our plate, so to speak. Verses 7 and 8, and then verses 20 through 22. In verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and Simon Peter threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat. And then in verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's about to betray you? When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. This morning, we're going to focus primarily on the question that Peter asked of Jesus regarding John, Lord, what about this man. Contextually, if you're handling it right, it's sort of like saying, what about his fate? You've just shared my fate, that I'm going to be taken somewhere I don't want to go, that my hands are going to be stretched out. Will he stretch his hands out to Jesus? What are your plans for this one? What about John? As I studied this these last really few months, kind of reading ahead and planning ahead, this little section was strangely familiar to me. I don't, familiar, I don't mean familiar just as in something that I've read before, but I mean familiar to me in something that I've lived and seen lived out in front of me. Maybe it's because I'm a parent. Maybe it's because I grew up with two brothers. Whatever the reason, what Peter does, what he asks in verse 20 and 21, and how Christ responds produced a weird deja vu. For me, how many times, parents, have you rebuked or confronted one of your children about something, and then in the middle of that, they bring up a sibling? What about Daniel? What about Evan? What are you going to do with her? 
How many times have you been in the throes of engaging your child on an important matter and they can't hear you because they're too concerned about your plans to deal with or maybe not deal with, heaven forbid, their brother or sister? What about this one? The heart of Peter's question doesn't seem to be concerned for John, but yet another display of Peter's frailty and flesh, as if we needed another look at his backside. Right? Peter, I've seen it over and over and over again in this book. And here you show it again at the end. It's amazing. Here he is restored to fellowship by the risen Lord. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Digesting heavenly, miraculously cooked fish. 153 fish are flopping around on the seashore. He's warming himself over a charcoal fire that he didn't build. Having received a command from God to feed and tend his sheep and lambs and to continue following him, he's focused on God's plan for another. Seriously? Sometimes when I'm reading God's word, I just have to go, wow. This is one of those wow occasions for me. Sometimes when you're reading God's Word, you just have to laugh. I laughed out loud as I really took this in that yet Peter showed us his backside yet again. Sometimes you just have to marvel that God would really choose the foolish things to confound the wise and then he would show us over and over and over and over again what those foolish things look like. You just have to laugh. Peter, you make me laugh that grace would reach so low for absolute and complete fools. It should create a certain humor in us. I'm going to share a quote that Brad shared a few weeks ago as he preached from an old dude, now dead. He shared this quote a year or so before he died, isn't that right? Gerard Ford. He said, am I making progress? If I'm really honest, it seems to me that the question is odd, even a little ridiculous. It'd be like Peter sitting around saying, how am I doing, Jesus? Looking pretty good, right? Which Peter would do. As I get older and death draws nearer, I don't seem to be getting better. I get a little more impatient, a little more anxious about having perhaps missed what this life has to offer, a little slower, harder to move, a little more sedentary and set in my ways. Am I making progress? Well, maybe it seems as though I sin less, but that may only be because I'm getting tired. <laughs> I'm just tired. It's just too hard to keep indulging the lusts of youth. Is that sanctification? I wouldn't think so. One should not, I expect, mistake encroaching senility for sanctification. But can it be, perhaps, that it is precisely the unconditional gift of grace that helps me see and admit all that? I'm going to say it's a gift of grace that he shows us, shows us Peter's backside one more time. It's the end of the book. 
It sort of, this last chapter sort of closes the loop and tells the, the it's not the rest of the story, but sort of it, it, it ends the encapsulated story of the gospel with Peter, Peter's movement in there. It sort of is that, the, the, okay, what happens to Peter part of the book? And I'm thankful that he shows it to us yet again. Just in case we thought that Peter was fixed. We leave here going, oh my goodness. Grace, grace still reaches so low. This guy goes on to say in the last sentence, the grace of God should lead us to see the truth about ourselves and to gain a certain lucidity, a certain humor, a certain down to earthedness. What I read about that is, man, it just makes me lighten up a little bit on myself and on y'all. I owe you that. Eight years into this thing. It makes me lighten up a little bit. On myself and on y'all. It gives me a certain humor to see Peter fumble yet again. I want to ask you right now, do you see yourself in Peter? Do every single one of you see yourselves in Peter? Maybe Peter's question about John's familiar because I've felt his feelings in ministry. If I can be vulnerable for a moment, as if it's a new thing. <laughs> I'll share with you that there have been times when I turned and considered how God would, was using another person. I'll confess to you that there have been times when I've been jealous of guys like John Piper, Matt Chandler, and Mark Driscoll. John Piper is hard to be jealous of because he's 20 years older. That's kind of easier to digest. More seasoned in ministry. But you hear that here he's preaching or you hear someone communicate the greatness of God through what God showed them through as one of his sermons. and Something in me is sometimes a little jealous. Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler have been more personal for me. I've never met either one of them, but there have been times where I've wondered at times why God chose to use them in the way He has and has chosen to use me in a somewhat smaller context. Just being honest. I've wondered at times why their messages were so impacting and global and mine not so much. A few months ago, I got off Facebook... <clears throat> Not because I think it's evil or wicked. <laughs> but because for me, it was just not good communication. It sort of distracted me what, from what I believe to be good communication. For me, it wasn't. But I want to be honest with you. Something else that sort of got me was seeing other people's comments about something great that Mark Driscoll or Matt Chandler said. Being honest. I'm not proud of that. It's like Peter saying... Jesus, what are you doing with these guys? What are you doing with them? I have at times done what Peter did, did here, where I've taken my eyes off his charge to me to tend and feed his sheep and his lambs in Greenville, and I've wondered, hey, Jesus, what about this guy? Hey, Jesus, what are you doing with him, and why are you doing it with him? And you know what? Here's the funny thing. As I share that and I'm vulnerable, I know that I'm not alone in those sort of feelings because I've heard them from y'all. I've heard them from y'all in different forms. Sometimes it's come with a desire to have a larger stage or a more prominent role. 
I've heard it from others at times, a desire to preach or teach and have a more significant voice. I've heard in others an attentiveness to the role another may serve. And here's the gravity of this. At the expense of the role that he's called them to serve. Pining for something else. Christ's response to Peter was this. If it's my will to do, or if it's my will that he remain till I return, then it's my will to have. What is that to you? You know, if Paul were there, I just can't imagine that Paul wouldn't chime in. Yeah, Peter, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Yeah, Peter, keep a close watch on yourself, not on John. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, Peter, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. I can't imagine that Paul wouldn't chime in. Christ's response, if it's my will that he remain till I return, it's my will to have. And then he reminds him of his commandment, Peter, keep your eyes on me. Continue following me. I have a few thoughts this morning to help us sort of connect to these truths. The first, it's important to know that God made us different. This first thought deals less with Peter's question and deals more with verses 7 and 8. But it's connected to Peter's question. The first thing I want you guys to understand is it's important to know that God made us different Look again at verse 7 and 8. I want you to, to hear it fresh before we really consider what's, what's going on there. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. Now that's John saying that. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw, him, threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples, though, came in the boat. There's a couple of contrasts here. First of all, I want you to see that John is typically the first guy to see the truth. And Peter is typically the first guy to act on the truth. And I also want you to see that Peter is the guy that swims ashore. And all the other disciples are the ones that paddle ashore. I want you to see and realize that some faith paddles and some faith swims, but it's faith nonetheless. It would be very easy for Peter to look with disdain on the paddlers, maybe thinking that they don't love Jesus like he did. It'd be very easy for a deacon who's serving well, zealously, to look on another deacon with disdain who's not at that moment serving so zealously. It'd be very easy for an elder or a father or anyone, a shepherd, to look on another and to judge the quality of their faith relative to your own and to essentially, here's the effect of it, to divide up the people of God and sort of categorize them. Swimmers and paddlers. If only everybody could swim like me. I brought two different readings in here, and it's probably pushing the envelope a little bit to share these readings, but that's all right. This is from John Owen in a book or a collection of works dealing with sin or overcoming sin. John Owen says this, Remember that many of the best Christians, of of many of the best Christians, 
the worst is known and seen. Many who keep a precious communion with God do yet oftentimes by their natural tempers of freedom or passion not carry so glorious appearances as others who perhaps come short of them in grace and the power of godliness. The guy that wrote the introduction said this about that comment. He said, there's a persistent danger among Christians in that we confuse certain personalities with sanctification, creating an inaccurate hierarchy within the kingdom of God. In fact, Owen believes that because of our various backgrounds and temperaments, it's very hard to discern the most faithful Christians since looks can be deceiving. What Owen is dealing with here is the reality that some folks paddle, some folks swim, some folks dog paddle. Some folks drift ashore. Some folks crawl. There are different paces of sanctification within within the people of God. That's what he's dealing with there. And some have really ugly, open, obvious sin, and others have these nice, tidy, private sins. Some folks paddle. Some folks swim. This is from Calvin's Institutes. This reading is a little more difficult. And I debated on whether I was going to share it or not. I'm sharing sort of an abridged version of it. But it's that good. So do what you can to hear it. And you may have to go back and listen to it online. He's writing on the imperfection and endeavor of the Christian life. How those things go together. Imperfection and the endeavor, really the pursuit of holiness is where he's going in the Christian life. I do not insist that the moral life of a Christian man breathe nothing but the very gospel, yet this ought to be desired, that we just breathe gospel. And we must strive toward it, but I do not so strictly demand evangelical perfection. That I would not acknowledge as a Christian one who has not yet attained it. For thus, all would be excluded from the church. If evangelical perfection were the standard, all would be excluded from the church, since no one is found who is not far removed from it. While many have advanced a little toward it, whom it would nevertheless be unjust to cast away. That's the dog paddlers. Or the drifters, maybe? What then? Let that target be set before our eyes at which we are earnestly to aim. He's talking about holiness here. Let that goal be appointed toward which we should strive and struggle. For it's not lawful for you to divide things with God in such a manner that you undertake part of those things which are enjoined by you or enjoined upon you by his word, but omit part according to your own judgment. He's saying, man, pursue holiness in all things. But then he goes on to say, No one in this earthly prison of the body has sufficient strength to press on with due eagerness. And weakness so weighs down the greater number that, watch these words, with wavering and limping and even creeping along the ground, they move at a feeble rate. Crawling, man. Some folks paddle, some folks swim, some folks crawl. Let each one of us then proceed according to the measure of his puny capacity and set out upon the journey we've begun. No one shall set out so inauspiciously as not daily to make some headway, though it be slight. 
Therefore, let us not cease to act that we may make some unceasing progress in the way of the Lord. Let us not despair at the slightness of our success. For even though attainment may not correspond to desire, when today outstrips yesterday, the effort is not lost. Man, that's good medicine. Only let us look toward our mark with sincere simplicity and aspire to our goal, not fondly flattering ourselves, nor excusing our own evil deeds, but with continuous effort striving toward this end that we may surpass ourselves in goodness until we attain to goodness itself. It is this indeed which through the whole course of life we seek and follow, but here's the bottom line. We shall attain it only when we have cast off the weakness of the body and are received into full fellowship with Him. Man, some run, some sprint, some crawl, some paddle, some fling themselves in the water and swim ashore, some dog paddle. But ultimately, we only attain the seashore in glory. We have to guard ourselves from fostering our thinking in this hierarchy. And remember that some faith paddles, some faith swims, but all come ashore. What's important is the presence of faith. What's important is movement in the direction of the shore. Christy and I were at a conference in Chicago and we heard Tim Keller preach, pastor of a a church in uh, New York City. He was preaching from Exodus on the gospel and he's sharing the story and he's talking about the story of the nation of Israel crossing the Red Sea. And he was making the point that it's not the quality of our faith that saves us, but the presence of our faith. I've shared this before and it's worth sharing again because it's just so appropriate. He's describing the walls of water on either side piled up. And they're crossing the bottom of the Red Sea on dry ground. Crunch, 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 crunch. The nation of Israel leaving Egypt. They've got the promised land in front of them. Now, they don't know at this point. They've got 40 years of wandering around. But they think, man, we're going home. Some of the guys crossing the Red Sea are going to be crossing the Red Sea like this. Man, this is awesome. Look at this. Just a sheer wall of water. Look. Put your finger in it. Look at that. That's awesome. Look, there's a fish. Look, there's another wall. That's awesome. And this ground is dry. Can you see we got all the way across? And look, Egypt is back there. I bet what God's going to do, he's going to swallow them. God is awesome. This is amazing. Their faith is huge and they're enjoying the deliverance of God. But yet others are crossing the Red Sea like this. We're going to die we're going to die. It's water. Look, it's going to, we can't breathe in water. And Egypt's right behind us. Let's hurry up. But he made the point that all crossed over. All crossed over. Man, what an encouragement. Some faith flings itself out of the boat and swims, and some faith just paddles. Turn to Romans chapter 14. I'm kind of going Puritan this morning in that I'm beating a dead horse, but it's worth beating, I'm telling you. Golly, this is worth beating. 
Romans chapter 14. We're going to look at two passages. And let me just kind of prepare you to the second and third points are not as exhaustive. So if you kind of have your energy, don't, don't think if I expend my energy here, I'm going to be out of gas for the rest of this. You're not because the second and third point are a little shorter. This first point is really worth exploding though. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Are you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Do you see room for paddlers and swimmers in there? Do you see room for even different paces in there? I see room for paddlers and swimmers, room for eaters. And drinkers. I see room for somebody who won't ever for the rest of their life cut grass on Sunday. I'm not going to do it. Dishonors the living God. And then somebody else says, man, that's the only day I can cut my grass. I'm going to cut my grass. I'm glad God made grass. I mean, both did it in faith. There's room for paddlers and swimmers there. There's room for hymn singers and praise worship singers. Lord, I lift your name on high. There's room, man. And we can give them some room. There's room for people that wear sport coats and ties and sing out of a hymnal each week. There's room for that. There's room for people who wear jeans and flip-flops. There's room for people who have tattoos and some who have real nicely parted hair. There's room. Man, that's an encouragement to me. 1 Corinthians 12 is the other passage. 1 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> Page 959 of your pew Bible or most ESV version, copies. <clears throat> First Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand... Now listen to the imagery here. Really climb into this. 
Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. It's important that somebody paddled ashore. If everybody had swam ashore, 153 fish would still be sitting out there in the water floating around. They would have had some breakfast, but apparently they needed some of it for a full meal. I mean, that's kind of a weird connection, but it's something I'm thinking about. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, this is one of the most important verses in the whole account to me. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The dog paddlers. The ones that are just saying, help me ashore, are indispensable. That's not dispensable. Indispensable means you can't do without them. The body needs those folks. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. I was laughing with Christy this morning. I wrote out in my margin, who are these guys? which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving, great, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Man, I hear room for different types of worshipers in here. I hear room... Some eat, some drink, some see, some touch. Some are presentable, some aren't. Some paddle, some swim, but all parts, even the weaker, are indispensable. God has made us different. Second point. Again, we're moving to second and third points, which are much briefer or shorter. I don't know if briefer is a word. Second thing I want you to understand this morning is God has made different plans for us. He's made us different. You see, you're going to see how this is related to Peter's question in verse 20 and 21. He has different plans for us. He had a very specific plan for Peter to stretch out his hands and to be taken where he didn't want to go, i.e. crucifixion. And he had a very specific plan for John to die of old age, we believe, on the Isle of Patmos after having a long, faithful ministry with the Ephesian church. Why did John get that? Why did Peter get a cross we believe to be, uh, tradition holds, upside down? Because God ordained that. He can do that because he's the potter. Romans 9 says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another, another vessel for dishonorable use? 
The question is asked, of course he does. He's the potter. He can do that. He can pull that off because he's the potter. Thinking about where we've been in Matthew chapter 13, those parables, the sower, the seed, and the soil, the good seed that hits good soil, and there's a 30, 60, and 100-fold increase. There's nothing saying that the difference there is this is somehow better lump of clay. It's from the same lump of clay. 30-fold? 60-fold? 100-fold? From the same lump of clay. Why can he do that and say, you're going to give a 30-fold increase? Why are you going to give a, you're going to give a 100-fold increase? He can do that because he's the potter and because he's God. He had different plans for Jacob than he had for Esau, for David than he did Jonathan, for Abraham than he did Lot, for Jeremiah than he did Daniel or Isaiah or Elijah. He is the potter, and he does with us what his, it's his decision to make. He made us different. And he has different plans for us. And third, God's different plans make up one God-glorifying story. I've been studying Hebrews, kind of preparing for our journey there starting in August. And I was reading about Hebrews chapter 11, about these heroes of the faith, these prominent figures in the story of salvation. Thinking about the different ways he used each of those prominent figures. And then I thought how he used the genealogy list of Matthew chapter 1. You ever skip genealogy lists when you're reading? Who doesn't? Man, the words are hard to read, funny names. You might look for a, you know, a creative kid's name in there. But that's about all the airtime is going to get. But think about this reality. Matthew chapter 1. Here's some of the names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Zerah, Hezron, Amenadab. Oh, Ram. Amenadab. Can't forget, can't forget Ram. Nashon. Salmon. is spelt salmon. Cracks me up. Salmon. I bet everybody called him salmon. But his name really was Salmon. He's the father of Boaz. Anybody know anything about Salmon. You don't know anything about Salmon because there's nothing provided other than his name. Salmon could have been standing around saying, Hey man, God, what about this one? Not realizing that he was to walk in faithfulness because he's going to be Boaz's daddy. He's going to be this man that's a kinsman redeemer to Ruth who fathers Obed. But he had a part to play in the story and it may not have seemed to be a prominent part, but it was an essential part. It was part of an important story. And then there's Obed, and then Jesse, and then David. Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, we call him as soon as possible. Jehoshaphat at, at our house, we laugh every time we read his name, as soon as possible. Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah, Sheltiel, Zerubbabel, Abuid, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eluid, or Eliad, Eleazar, Methan, Jacob, and Joseph, the husband of Mary. I read their names because I want to give these guys a little bit of props. Because they were little pieces in a story. Important pieces in a story. Even if they were storyless in and of themselves. Somebody had to be between 
Nashon, and Boaz. A dude with a funny name, named after a fish. Somebody had that role. The reality is all of these prominent figures of Hebrews chapter 11 were defined by the people who went before them. Many of them storyless. Someone had to be Timothy's mother and grandmother. Someone had to be Timothy. We've got to know that we're someone else's list of future faithfulness. And that we can be so busy pining about how God's using someone else or how we want to be used in some other way that we're not walking faithfully in what he's called us to. Someone had to be John to live to a ripe old age on the Isle of Patmos and to write the Gospel of John, to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and to write the book of Revelation. And then again, someone had to die on a cross crucified upside down. And someone, it seems, was ordained to hear the Gospel of John exposed over the course of eight years as part of his story to walk in what we've heard continuing to follow Christ, being all He's called us to be in His good and perfect will. It's part of His story. The point of this message, at least these last points here, is to be all that God has called you to be in the context He's placed you. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Waodani Indians in Ecuador. His mission work there was really hours, days old before he was murdered by the Indians. He had a quote that comes to my mind often as I serve my family and as I serve Cross Point Fellowship and as I serve Greenville. He said, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt Every situation you believe to be the will of God, live to the hilt. Man, that's strong. Don't pine for another context at the, expect, at the expense of where he's placed you. You may be Jesse. You may be David. You may be Lois. You may be Eunice. You may be Timothy. You may be Salmon. You're on somebody's list. It's his will to have for us because he's the potter. And it's God honoring when you do what he's called you to do, tending his sheep, feeding his lambs, and just continuing to follow him. <clears throat> All right. I am about to read the last two verses of the book of John. In honor of our journey. And then we'll have our supper. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things. And who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Don't we? (laughs) Man, we've seen it. We've seen it lived out. We've seen lives transformed. 
Have we enjoyed this or not? And we know it. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If you are by faith in Christ, we'll enjoy all those things in glory. (laughs) It's like the rest of the story we'll enjoy for eternity. Let's pray and then we'll take the supper together. God, we are thankful for this journey. What a remarkable, what a remarkable journey it's been. Thankful for what you've shown us about yourself and about the truth, about the uh, people of God, what it means to be part of a people. It's been good nourishment, Lord. We just pray for more of the same as we journey together in Hebrews and other books. Just pray that you will just continue to build us into a people that bring honor and glory to you. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What I'm doing on Lord's Supper, when I, when I have the opportunity to share kind of a devotional thought about Lord's Supper, is I want to share a brief truth about the Lord's Supper. Last week we considered this the Supper of Provision. This week we're going to consider that it's the Supper of Covenant. Y'all have done good for the AC not working. You've done really good. I mean, you've been very attentive. I see lots of fans going, lots of people sweating. I'm sweating more than you, I bet. But it's been good. So y'all engage this supper. Be real intentional about paying attention. This is not common that our AC doesn't work. That building's close. Just let me just tell you that. Close in time, not just geography. Consider these passages from Genesis chapter 15. Don't turn, just Listen. God told Abraham, he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then later in verse 18 of the same chapter, chapter 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, that's a deal. He made a pact with Abraham saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, in the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God moved a man named Terah and his household from Ur of the Chaldeans to a place called Haran. And there he called a man named Abram to go to Canaan that God would make of Abram a great nation. And it's an interesting promise since Abram and Sarai were barren. God loves working with the hopeless, the unlikely. That's his modus operandi. And then in Genesis chapter 18... The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat down at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, 
three seas of fine flour, kneaded and made cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Oh, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah's listening in the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, here barren. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, Am I, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure, i.e. of a boy child? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. For she was afraid, and he said, No, but you did. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, hmm. He says to himself, Shall I hide from Abraham, Abraham what I'm about to do? Judgment? Am I about to hide this judgment from him? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham all that he's promised him. It's a mouthful. Shall I show Abraham what I'm about to do? I want you to see in this passage that here God dines with his people. It's a tiny little micro people at this point, but it's his people. He has a meal with them. And he gives them more than a baby announcement. And Sarah laughs about it. And then God reveals his plans to his people because that's what God does with his people. Because they're chosen for righteousness. So that God may bring Abraham all he's promised him. As we dine together every week, this can be said over and over again. We're having a meal with God and God is showing us his plans. He's showing us how he works. Why is he doing that? Because he's chosen us for righteousness. Here we are, centered around a meal. We find God fulfilling His promise to make of them a great nation. And we find God letting His people in on the plan because He chose them for righteousness. We are part of a deal with God, an agreement that He initiated. I will love you with a way, in fact, the only way to avoid my wrath. I will love you with a way into my family, not as a servant, but as an heir with full rights and privileges. I will love you with a way in the righteous and finished work of my son. And by faith, we take and eat and drink and we remember that covenant. We enjoy that covenant together as we die. Let's do that together.
share a passage with you as we put this in our mouths. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, when you find yourselves in blessings that you did not earn, in houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, here's our part of the deal. Then take care lest you forget the Lord. It sounds simple. It's not simple. We need each other to be stirred up by way of reminder. Let us not forget the Lord. Let's not forget the story, the gospel. Let's, let's not forget what he's done. Let's not forget how bad we need him. Humility decays. I get forgetful. I think I need a little bit less grace over time. I need to be reminded. Let us not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Let's take and eat. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Man, that's good news. He who has no money, everybody want to pull their pockets out, pull all the lint out. Morally, we're absolutely, completely bankrupt. You get that? Relative holiness. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money, without price, because it's already been paid for. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Take and drink. Let's continue in worship and song and giving. I just have one brief thought, and I'm going to turn it over to Scott uh, Fiesel to close us out in prayer this morning and make a quick announcement. I want you to know that this sermon is not an invitation to go freestyle and individualistic. It's not an invitation to maverick faith or renegade faith. I hope you recognize the imagery or sort of individual sort of characters within a union of a body. You're still moving together as a people. You may paddle, you may swim, you may be a different part of the journey, you may have a different form of walking, running, jumping, swimming, crawling. We're going to die. But we're all moving together. That's important to realize. That thing that's moving together is called the church. So I encourage you, if you're looking for a church home, if you're considering a church home, if you're reconsidering a church home, all that stuff happens all the time. That's okay. 
Realize that movement with God's people, that's what it's all about for the glory of God. Together. Not an invitation to freestyle faith this morning. Okay? It is an invitation to understand the journeys that we're all on. Okay? All right, I'm going to turn it over to Scott. Dearly Father, we just thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for the time of worship. Uh, just praise the body. Uh, just how well we did uh, under the circumstances of the, the AC not working. Um, just thank you for the attentiveness uh, of your people, uh, eager to hear your word. Uh, thank you for the worship team uh, and their preparation in, in leading in that. Um, I pray that you would just uh, be with us this week, uh, that we would think uh, on this message, uh, and through that thinking that you would provide uh, more understanding uh, on it, and just in our conversations with family, uh, friends, small group, all that. Uh, and these things we pray in your name. Amen.